for leading us today and welcome in to MCC. Thankful, thankful, thankful to have you guys with us. Hey, if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to go grab it. Turn to Romans, I mean Romans, shoot, Hebrews. Man, I don't know. We got to go there next. Hebrews chapter 12. That's where we're going to be hanging out today. While you're turning there, I want to just remind you guys, we have this event coming up next Sunday called Connecting Point. It's for anybody who's somewhat new to MCC, kind of new over the course of the winter. It's going to be an event where we just gather together, help you get connected to us as a church, catering Olive Garden to it. So while you're here, your family. So text breadsticks to that number right there. We'll get you signed up. We'll get your kids in there. We got childcare and all that fun stuff for them. It'll be good. All right, if you don't have your Bible, no worries. We're going to really just hone in on one verse. We're going to have a lot of it there, but I want to read you some of the context around it. So if you got a Bible, Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to start at verse 7. I'm going to take you down to verse 13. This is the Word of God. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but be healed. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for today. A heavy day, but a good day. I thank you for a day like this where, God, I can come together with my blood family and my faith family and preach this word. Father, I know that you have brought everybody here for a purpose and a reason, that you are a God who ordains and knows exactly what, down to the elemental level, we should be doing at any given moment, and it is no accident that we are here today to be able to hear from you. So, Father, I pray that you would take my words, you would take my mouth, and you would speak through me, that I would begin to fade more and more to the background, and somebody who is desperate to hear from their heavenly Father today would begin to be able to hear from him in a way they may never have before. I love you, Jesus, and I thank you for saving a wretch like me so that I could do something so heavy as this today. In your name, amen. So over the course of uh, these past few weeks of going through the book of Hebrews, uh, one of the things I've been realizing is, uh, man, it's hard to move on past some stuff. And it is just so tempting to, to ring out and retch out all the stuff that is in some of these passages. And today, what I really want to do is just lean into verse 13 with you guys. It was one that I know we tapped on a little bit last week, but I just could not move past this idea of the path. I'll show you the verse. We're going to lean into it heavily here today. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. There's a lot of truth in this. I don't want to try to lean into it with you guys. I'm not normally the type of guy who gives my sermons titles, and I definitely don't give you outlines. I just kind of word vomit all over you guys, and then we cry and we go home. And uh, today is hopefully going to be a little bit different than that, but I actually have a title. Today's title would be The Principle of the Path, and the things that we're going to lean into today is the purpose of the path, the pain of the path, and then the prize of the path. We're going to start right there at the purpose of this path first. Let's see if we can kind of get some clues as to what it's actually talking about here. He says, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather it would be healed. Now, what I want to talk to you about 
when I come to this is this truth and reality that for everybody in the room, we're all headed somewhere. We're all going in some sort of direction. And we know this to be true, that it is not your intentions that determines your direction or even your destination, but it's actually your decisions that determine your direction and your destination. You know this, like if you want to go to Disneyland, you've got to get on I-75 what? So you can have the best intentions to go to Disneyland, but if you get on I-75 North, you're not going to get there. That's why the phrase that most of us can probably quote here is true. The road to hell is paved with what? Good intentions. So it doesn't really matter what we're intending to do. It actually determines where we're going by what we decide to do and where we go. So the question, kind of a big question I want to ask you today is, do you like where your decisions are leading you? Your life and the sum collection of decisions you make, whether they're decisions with your money, decisions with your time, decisions in your relationships, do you like where your decisions are leading you? Or are you kind of clouded and confused and thinking that your intentions are leading you? Because some of you, we got a lot of good intentions. There's a lot of good intentions in the room. But intentions don't really get us anywhere. Decisions do. We're all on a path to something. Maybe today you feel like you're on a path, you're trying to at least, to be on a path to more money. Maybe on a path to retirement, a path to a relational healing, a path to pleasure, a path to security. But what if, this is the big what if, what if we're really not supposed to look at life as it's just this path to something? What if the real hope and the real purpose of a life is not a path to something, but actually a path to someone? Jesus talked about this idea and this reality of life being actually at its best when it's not a path to lead to something, but actually to someone when he said these words in John 14, six. He said, I am the way. It's his way of saying, I am this path. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. It's Jesus' way of saying, the place you really want to be is coming to this reality that you were created by a higher power, that you were created by a loving, caring, kind, heavenly Father. And the only way to get to him is going my path. I am the way. In explaining this idea of Jesus as the path a little bit further, he, in Matthew 7, said these words, and these are, may cause us to get a little nervous here if we just understand the way paths and gates and wideness and narrowness works. He says, enter in the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way, the path, is easy that leads to destruction. That's bad. We don't want that. And those who enter by it, write that down, underline it, are many and then he says, juxtapose this big wide gate that is easy to get into but leads to destruction. Juxtapose that against this other gate that is a narrow gate and its way is actually hard. But, here's the good news, it leads to life. And those who find it, here's some more interesting news that should be a little bit alarming. It's few. So if this verse is true, we gotta take the two realities that maybe you can deduce from this passage. There is this big, open, broad way, and it leads to destruction, but it's easy. And then there's this narrow way, and this narrow way is harder, but it is the actual way that leads to life. It's the way that leads to peace. It's the lead this way that leads to forgiveness. It's the way that leads to real joy, real satisfaction. But then he says something scary there. He says, this way is only found by a few. The question we got to look ourselves in the mirror and ask is, am I one of the few. Because if this verse is true, here's the scary truth. More people will not find this narrow path than will find it. 
I know I, I, I can't remember any funeral I've been to and even ones I had to preach at where they were like, well, we all love Billy, but he's burning in hell. <laughs> I haven't been to that one yet. You know, like I haven't, I haven't caught that one where, where, where they were like, for sure. I know what path he was on. He was on that broad one, like for sure. No matter how, you know, hell blazing of the person they were when they were on earth, man, we get to their funeral and they're like, they're in heaven. They're just looking down on us. Like that's how we are. But if this is true, what this means is there's only a few. And again, the question is, am I one of the few who have found that path? And talking about this path again, he says, make straight paths for your feet. And when we come to this, here's the truth. What he's talking about here is not this reality that it's really like every other world religion. Every other, every other world religion says, you do good, you live a moral life, you treat people nicely, you help old ladies cross the road, you be a little bit generous with your money. If you do good things, then at the end of your life, you'll see God. That's every other major world religion. And it's tempting to even come to this passage and go, okay, well, if I make my path straight, well, then I get healing. Well, that sounds like Jesus. I, 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 guess, I guess that's why that goes. But the truth of this passage is not saying make a straight path to Jesus and just, just find the right things to do. And if you do it really good at the end of your life, then you'll see Jesus. That's every other world religion. Our religion is not do good and then maybe you'll get to God. Our religion, our faith is you could never do good enough. You could never be who you needed to be. You could never make a path to God. You at best are running on a treadmill, spinning tires in the mud. There's no way you can get to this God, which is why this God came to us. That's the incarnation. That's Christ with us. That's Emmanuel. And this God comes to us. And what he does is he makes that path from divinity to humanity. Now, this verse can kind of be a little bit confusing then because it goes, well, I got to make a path. I have to make this straight path. But what you have to understand here is the difference between, I'm gonna give you two kind of 50 cent Christian words, justification and sanctification. Here's how I would maybe try to explain it to you. The path to justification has already been paved. It's been paved by the blood of Jesus. I would add that into there. The path to justification has been paved so you can walk the path of sanctification. What Hebrews 12, 13 is talking about is not the path to justification. It is talking about this path to sanctification. Some of you are still looking at me like a German shepherd who's just heard a whistle. Like, will you still, I still don't know what you're talking about. All right, let me try to explain this. Justification is what happens when by faith, you put your hope and your trust and you bank your life both here and eternally on Jesus. The Bible tells us that it is by that faith that we are then saved, is by that grace that we are now positionally holy. When Jesus' uh, sin covers you, God now looks at you, doesn't see your sin, scars, and mistakes, but what he sees is you justified. Uh, oh, the, the answer is in the word. It is just as if I'd never sinned. When God looks at you by faith in Christ, that is now what he sees. That is positional holiness. You've been made holy by your faith in Christ. But we know that when you got baptized or when you raised your hand at that camp or came down in that revival, you didn't just immediately do that and you were just like floating embodiment of Jesus everywhere you went, not getting frustrated in traffic, loading the dishwasher the right way, never thinking bad thoughts about people, like never wanting to hear the juicy form of gossip. We all still struggled even after our point of justification and salvation. In this walk with Jesus, there is this process 
this ongoing process called sanctification. See, some of you were brought up and you were just like, I'm saved, the end. Well, yes, friend, you for sure are saved, but it's not the end. You are saved, but here's the news. You are also being saved. You are in this process of sanctification. That's the process of your savior who is in you at justification, working his self out of you through sanctification. So that as you walk through this life and you bump into people, they can't tell who's who. Is that Jesus or is that Trent? I can't tell anymore because through the course of walking and working and following this savior, the God who is on the inside has more and more now faded to the forefront and you have faded into the background, if not non-existent all together. This is what he's calling us to on this path. Now the glory of this path and the good thing on this path is that when he says to make straight paths for your feet, we have to understand what that actually means. Because if that's straight paths lead to healing, well, I gotta make sure I know what straight is actually about. The Greek word there for straight is this word orthos. Bible's written in Greek, that's kinda how it's translated. This word straight translates orthos. It's where we get our uh, English word for orthopedics. That's where all that comes from. It's that same beginning root word. And when he's talking about this idea of orthos, we can easily get it twisted. But what this is saying, when I gotta make straight paths to Jesus and then I get healing, that I've gotta get my life straightened out and then I can get Jesus. But friend, here's what I need you to hear. Desperately need you to hear. You don't have to get your finances straightened out before you can start coming to church. I know some people are like, wow, I gotta get my finances straightened out because I know I can't give right now. And if I come, they're gonna ask me to give and they're gonna feel guilty for not giving. And I don't wanna come to church and then feel guilty and leave church and then feel guilty again. I'd just rather not go to church. You don't have to get that figured out before you come to Jesus. You don't have to get your relationships figured out before you come to Jesus. You can be living with somebody who's not your husband or wife and still come to Jesus. You don't have to get your sexuality straightened out before you come to Jesus. You can have some same-sex attraction and come to Jesus. Again, <laughs> you don't have to vote the right way. You don't have to be in the right political party, whichever one that is, who knows. You don't have to be in that before you can come to Jesus. You don't have to have your relationships figured out before you can come to Jesus. You don't have to have your tongue figured out before you come to Jesus. Like, man, I know if I go to church, I'm gonna get one in groups, I'm gonna say a cuss word and they're gonna kick me out of that place. You don't have to get that figured out before you come to Jesus. You don't get to have to get your bad habits straightened out before you go to Jesus. You don't even have to get your doubts straightened out before you get to Jesus. Here's the good news. This is very, 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 very good news. You don't have to get straight with Jesus before you go straight to Jesus. Just go straight to Jesus. The good news is, that's what he does. That's this gift, this amazing gift of running to Jesus going, I ain't got a hope of getting this money straightened out, of getting these attractions straightened out, of getting these habits straightened out, of getting my tongue straightened out. You are my only hope. So I'm going straight to you and you, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through me, you straighten me out. That's what he's great at. That's why he is the great soul orthopedic surgeon who cuts all that crap out and straightens us up so that we can go directly straight to him. So that's the purpose of the path. So we can go straight to Jesus and walk straight with Jesus. Now I want to talk to you about the pain of the path. This is the point that I don't really like, but just have to get there. The pain of the path. You can see it even in the verse. He said, make straight path for your feet so that what is lame, that's part of the pain, may not be put out of joint. That's the painful part too, but rather be healed. 
Now, in Hebrews 12, he's already given us these metaphors about running this race and, and, and all this stuff and this perseverance stuff. So it's easy to come to this word when he says, make straight path for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint and think, okay, well, lame equals limping. That's not how scripture usually talks about lame. Lame is not limping. Lame is stopped. Lame is paralyzed. Lame is not moving at all. That's why when in the gospels, when it talks about Jesus making the lame to walk, the implication is there that they were not walking even with a limp before Jesus showed up on the scene. This is the beggar at the pool of Bethesda who, whose legs absolutely do not work and Jesus shows up and heals him. This is the, the quadriplegic who is lowered through the roof, lands at Jesus' feet and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Get up your mat and walk. Before that though, he wasn't limping. He was lame. And what the pastors of the church in Hebrews, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is trying to help these people understand is that in his local church, this pastor looks out at a congregation and he sees people who he hopes, who he's praying for by name, who are supposed to be running this sprint towards Jesus, and he doesn't see people limping along. What he sees is on the great track that is this race, not people limping, but people sitting down, stopped, completely paralyzed, given up for whatever reason. And he says, in a warning, get back up, get back on this straight path, get back on track. And here's why. So that what is lame among you, so that what is lame stopped would not be put out of joint. See, in this, this idea of lameness, this is some, oftentimes this is just this, uh, this numbness that you feel where like things that used to affect you don't even affect you anymore. You see terrible, awful, horrible things on the news. And you're like, man, it is what it is. You know, you know, you know, you, you know, things that used to make you kind of feel a little bit of guilt, like the good guilt, not like the, you're a terrible person, you know, go jump off a bridge guilt, but the, the, the good guilt. And you don't even feel guilty anymore. You just kind of go through it and you go through it. That's the lameness that has all but stopped your faith. And he says, here's the great danger in that stoppage is that there would be a dislocation that it would be taken out of. That word right there, put out of joint, is one Greek word. And it basically means that it's just complete separation. So what he's saying here is not, hey, there's gonna be a dislocated joint, but it's all good, just keep going and it'll eventually heal up. No, he's saying this dislocation that came from a lame limb is eventually going to lead to amputation, permanent amputation. And again, those are the things that are alarming for us when we look at our own life and we go, have I stopped? Again, the pastor to this church, he's encouraging, he's pounding the table. And, 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 and verse, uh, chapter 12 is really just this culmination point where he's like, keep going, fight, 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 continue on. Because what he knows is he looks around and he sees people who've given up, stopped. And he's holding out, I believe in verse 13, this last ditch hope for those who are sitting on the bleachers, sitting in the sidelines, and whether it's their doubt, their fear, or their shame, have all but given up. And he says, make a straight path. Jesus has made a straight path to you. Get back up and walk the straight yet narrow path that leads to him. 
And Jesus told us, like, where, where does our courage come from in this? I, I think John 16, is a great place to go. If we are in that position where we've all but stopped, John 16, 33, Jesus said, I've told you these things that in me, you may have peace. Here's why they needed the peace. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. Not you're going to be able to get out of trouble if you give a lot of money to a church or some televangelist. Not you're going to be able to get out of trouble if you serve in kids ministry and wipe boogers and butts. Not you're going to get out of this trouble if you never say cuss words or get frustrated in traffic. He says, in this world, the level playing field is that we're going to have trouble. It's coming. Tailor your expectations to trouble coming your way. But then he gives them some hope. Take heart though, I've overcome the world. I've faced everything that this world could ever throw at somebody and I've overcome it, so take heart. In a prophetic sense, this prophet Isaiah even foretold about what Jesus was gonna go through so that we could get the healing that we need and not be put out of joint. He said this in a prophetic way. This is written hundreds of years before Jesus ever shows up in a manger in Bethlehem. This is Isaiah, a prophet in the Old Testament, prophesying about what Jesus would come and do in the gospels. He says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds, we are healed what this pastor is trying to explain. And he says this a little bit earlier in chapter 12. He says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. What he's saying there is in Jesus's pain, what he was doing as he's going through the excruciating pain of the cross is he's actually looking down the corridor of history and seeing you and going for the joy of bringing them to my father, I will suffer what I suffer. In my pain, I'm looking to them. The reason he, in his pain, looks to you is so that in your pain, you can then look to him as the overcomer, the one who's went through it, gone through it. And here's the great news, we'll go through it with you. And the, the hope that this gives us is that in this life, I've gotta choose my pain. I'll either choose the pain of discipline or I'll choose the pain of regret. The pain of discipline is this pain that he's talking about in Matthew seven fourteen when he says, this way, this path is hard. And there are gonna be things down here that are hard that God's actually gonna allow and make happen in your life. They're gonna grow and strengthen your life so that what you would face in 2025 with something that would crush you if you didn't go through what you're going through in 2024. So I can either choose this pain of discipline or I can choose this pain of regret. This pain of regret that says, okay, while I was down here, I just played it safe. When I was down here, I didn't wanna, I didn't wanna ruffle any feathers. When I was down here, I just chose comfort. I chased money. I compromised. And what he says is there's gonna come a time when the lameness and the numbness that you felt it's undeniable because the amputation from you from the body of Christ is going to happen. And that should be, again, a giant wake-up call. Now, the, the hope is that nobody in this room would have to suffer the pain of dislocation and the pain of amputation. And here's, here's why that's such a big hope and why I think it's actually something we can lean towards and look forward and it's found in being able to see what actually happened to Jesus. If you've got a Bible, I'm gonna invite you to go to the book of Psalms, right in the middle of your Bible. 
Psalm. I got, I'm going to show it on the screen too, but I want you to be able to see maybe even the whole one and go back and read it through the week. Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is actually a Bible verse that is a very prophetic in sense. David is the one who wrote this Psalm, but Psalm 22 was a passage of scripture that Jesus, while he was on the cross, actually quotes to show people there even from the cross as he's suffocating on his own blood and it's excruciating even to get words out, Jesus makes a point to push up off the cross and yell out these words in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which again, hopefully by now you're at Psalm 22. If you go there, look at the first lines, Psalm 22. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Verse two, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. Jump down to verse six. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Verse seven, all who see me mock me and make their mouths at me and wag their heads. Verse eight, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. He's like basically quoting the unrepentant thief on the cross. Just happens to be 2,000 or so, or a few hundred years before the thief actually said it. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Now I want you to go to verse 14. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint and my heart is like wax melted within my breast. It's as if the pastor to this Hebrew church as he's writing to them is writing Hebrews 12, 13 with Psalm 22, 14 in his mind. He's saying, I would hate it. It would be terrible and awful if any of you who are lame right now were disjointed, were dislocated from this body of Christ. And the main reason that would be absolutely terrible is because Jesus suffered this dislocation. All of his bones were put out of joint there as he's lifted upon that cross. He went and was dislocated so that you would never have to be. And the point in, in, in leaning in and, and, and showing them this is that our savior walked the crooked path up the hill of Calvary to the place of the skull where crooked and evil men go to die. And then his bones were put out of joint so that you could walk a straight path and never be put out of joint if you put your trust and faith in him. And this is the hope, this is the glory of the gospel. This is what we get to avoid because he went through what he went through. Now, I wanna talk to you about the prize of the path because it is what is, thank God, on the other side of the pain, the prize of the path. You see it even in the verse. He says, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This healing is the prize. And the healing is not just in that we get healed and all the things that we went through down here finally make this place where we go, oh no, I see how all that worked together for God's good. No, the healing is not just in the fact that he's gonna work all things together for the good of those who love him, but the healing is knowing that the healer is with you right now. He's in you, he's working through you. There's a passage in the book of 1 Corinthians that I think talks a lot about this prize. He 
Paul is writing this, he's an apostle to the church and he says, don't you guys know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So he's saying, okay, we get that. So run that you may actually obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. He's talking about just the discipline that you go through to do that. They do it to receive a perishable wreath or perishable crown. But he's saying, we do that to get one that is everlasting, that's imperishable. And so he says, okay, here's what we do because of that. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm not gonna run aimlessly. I'm not gonna box as somebody just fighting the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself would be disqualified. I believe that some of the point that he's trying to make here is that this prize that we are after is one that Jesus has given us. But as we go through this, there is going to be this inevitable thing that is discipline and pain. And if you're here and you're hurting, Hebrews 12 is the best place in the world to get a theology and an understanding of why God lets bad things happen to people. Now notice, I didn't say good people. There ain't no good people. We're just people, all right? And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no such thing as a good person. So when we come to this, we now can get to this realization that all the pain that I've experienced in my life, and some of you in this room, you've got pain and you've got wounds that are currently open. Some of you in this room, you've got wounds that have healed and that are scars. Hopefully, by the grace of God, some of you who have wounds that still feel like they're bleeding in this room, they will eventually come scars, scars that you can tell stories about that actually are wounds that Jesus turns into a weapon. But here's the beautiful thing about wounds. Here's the beautiful thing about scars. When you cross over and you enter into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, there's only gonna be one person in that group who still has scars. I believe our scars aren't gonna transfer. I may be wrong, we'll see when we get there, but I don't think our scars are gonna transfer. Here's why. Our scars down here, whether they're emotional, mental, or physical scars based off of what we went through down here, our scars point to the brokenness and the fallenness and the sinfulness of human beings. His scars point to the exact opposite. Jesus' scars point to redemption and they point to healing. This is why when he showed up in the upper room in John 20, this is post-resurrection, one evening, on the evening of the day, the first day of the week, the doors were locked. The disciples were uh, fearing the Jews. Jesus came in and he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. And then when he said this, he didn't just want to say peace. He wanted to show them what bought the peace. He takes his hands and he shows them his hands. And there, they're no longer seeing blood dripping out from a Roman spike that was driven through his wrists. What they're seeing is scars that show that those wounds were healed. And then he, I believe, pulls open his cloak and he shows this place on his side where the blood and water flowed out of him. And if you ask me, well, why in the world does Jesus keep these scars? I would tell you that his scars prove that he is not ashamed of what he went through for you. Now, shame is a very powerful, very hard thing. Now, I know some of you in this room, man, you feel it right now. Shame causes you to isolate. Shame causes you to run. Shame, shame causes you to lie, to pose that you are more important or you are bigger for your britches. Shame does a lot of mess up things for us because shame tells this great lie. 
that you are something bad because you did something bad. And what Jesus does is he shows us his scars. And his scars will transfer even into his eternal kingdom. But what his scars don't say is you are something bad. What his scars show us is I'm not ashamed of what you've done. And I would do this over and over and over again if I could prove to you the depth of my love for you. These scars aren't a trophy that shows what I had to suffer. These scars show and represent the depth of my love for you. And they tell a story of how great my love is. And he opens this up and he says, these are the prize. And now we come to this place where by his wounds, this is what the whole passage of Isaiah was about, by his wounds now, we actually get the healing. And the proof that those scars show that I'm not ashamed of what you've done, give us the place where we can now, even in our own lives, overcome the past and the mistakes that we've made and go, if those scars that he shows me prove that he's not ashamed of what I've done, then I'll let those scars bring healing from my wounds that I'm even going through right now in this very moment. If he's not ashamed of them, neither should you be. And that's a prize that is purchased by the pain that our Savior went through for me and for you. The beautiful thing, too, about this path and the prize that's on it is not just the healing that you get. It's getting to this place where you realize and understand that I'm not the only person on this path. And I'm not consumed whether or not I'm doing a good job or a bad job on this path. The real beauty in this path is being able to lock eyes with Jesus and run headlong after him and realize and know and understand that when you do that, what you do is you actually create a clearer path for those who would come after you. I saw this in effect a few days ago as me and my son Titus, we are um, doing his 10-year-old rite of passage thing. Um, for those of you who've heard me tell a little bit of stories about my boys, I try to be intentional with fatherhood and at five and at 10 and then probably at 15, we do these rite of passage experiences. At five, took him to the mountains as baby to boy. At 10, we're really leaning into responsibility. And what we're doing for Titus is we are preparing to run a 10K in Tennessee for his 10-year trip. The reason we're trying to lean into that is you can't just, unlike going to the mountains, I can prep, I've done it a few times, I can prep to go to mountain trip in Colorado three days out and we'll be there. You can't prep three days out for a 10K and make it. You're, you might die. <laughs> like, so we're trying to be responsible. You got to run the play. You got to run the path. You got to prepare. You got to daily be diligent to get your stuff in. And for those of you know, who know me, like I have no problem working out. I love working out. It's how I deal with my anger. It's cheaper than counseling. I love doing that. But one of the things that I absolutely despise doing is running. I don't like it. All right. So it's a discipline for me too. A few days ago, it was on a Tuesday. Me and Titus are running and we're doing our daily thing for that day because I'm running this 10K with him. We're going on our jog and the way we were doing it, it was an interval thing. So we walk three miles and then run seven miles straight and we did that three times. We get on our second little part of walking and he asked me, um, he knew I was at Strong Rock, the school he goes to, and I preached at chapel that day and he asked me what I talked about. And I told him, I actually uh, just recycled a sermon from a few weeks ago in here, um, work smarter, not harder. And I preached on Roman, or Hebrews 12, two to the kids, one and two to them about run the race marked out for you, run with perseverance, throw off the weight and sin that entangles and run with eyes locked on Jesus. 
I kind of talked to him a little bit about that. And then he got quiet for a second. He goes, Dad. Now, mind you, we only got like two minutes to talk because we only got to start running again. He goes, Dad, I got to tell you something. And like with Titus, I don't never know what I, where it was going next. Like he can be like, I want to be dressed up as Spider-Man next year for Christmas. Like he, or I thought maybe, I didn't really know what to expect. I thought because I just told him some like Jesus stuff, he was about to confess a sin to me. I didn't know what he was about to say. He goes, Dad, I want to tell you something. I go, what's up, man? And he goes, Dad, I want to get baptized. It's time. Now, this is, this is just so ironic because me and this child have spent thousands of hours on baseball fields and batting cages. And wouldn't it make sense that God in his grand sense of humor would go, your son's gonna choose to get baptized while you're running. <laughs> God has a sense of humor. And so we talk about it. And again, like I'm looking at the clock. I'm like, dude, we only got like three seconds left to talk about this. I was like, hey, we're gonna keep talking about this. Let's keep, you know, keep going. And then we get back and we talk about it and we process all this out. And man, it was just this moment in my life where I realized I've had so many times in my own race where I've been lame, where I've, where I've all but stopped. I've had so many times in my own race where I wanted to quit, where I wanted to give up, where I was the, the pitching a fit kid in the cereal aisle to God going, I don't like what you're getting me. I'd rather have the sugary sweet stuff. And I've been pitching a fit in the aisle and God has essentially said, if you wanna keep getting my provision, you're gonna stay with me. And I've had to just pick myself up and walk to the grocery store and figure out where he's at essentially. Continued to walk and to walk and to walk and to follow after this God and the great joy in being able to just get back up and feel Jesus lift you back up is then you realize and understand and I'm telling you every person in this room whether you're a parent whether you're somebody who just has a job you don't even have wife and kids yet you're a grandparent there is a generation of people behind you that is watching how you run you have divine influence over those who are watching you. And so what we get this gift to do is to be able to enjoy the blessedness of forgetting about ourselves for just a little while and rejoicing as we see those who maybe just maybe saw enough Jesus in us, heard enough Jesus through us that they go, I am getting out of the lame lane and I'm stepping into who Jesus has called me to be. And then they go follow him headlong into this life that he's called him to. And so today I get to reap a huge reward of the path that God has put me on. And friends, I pray as you walk and you follow him too, you get to reap the rewards of the path too. But hear me, the prize doesn't precede the pain. Matter of fact, the prize is really wrapped up in the pain. It just doesn't seem like it in the moment, but it leads to it at the end. And so as we get ready to receive communion, what this cup and what this wafer represents is the path to the prize. And the great prize is now that you can taste and see that he is good. The path and the prize is now that you can come to this place where you go, this is what's been done for me. And it's finished. And in this hands, I, I hold this juice that represents and is symbolic of the one who earned these scars to prove to me that he's not ashamed of what he was willing to do for me. So as you commune with him today, I pray that you, just for a second, breathe in and breathe out. Take the 
take the eyes off of the pain that you're feeling for just a moment and see what he went through. Not to just be this grand goal that I wish I could do it like you, but see what he went through and then know that he's in you. That's why we don't just look at communion, we eat it. It's in us, he's in us. Father God, we thank you for your love and glory. Thank you for the grace that is tangible in this room. As we take this communion, as we take this body broken and this blood poured out, I pray that Jesus, we know that it is by your wounds we are healed. And then even in the midst of our wounds, you're bringing healing. And not just healing for us, amazingly, but even healing for those who would come after us. We love you, Jesus. Have love you, Jesus. Be with us now as we speak to you in the quiet moments we have.